This show is brought to you by my friends at Alliance and Trust. In wild times like these, you need more than financial product salespeople. You need a firm that looks at the entirety of your life and helps you with strategies that coordinate all disciplines of good stewardship so you can manage wisely what God has given you and thrive in these times of chaos and confusion. Have a team that acts as consultants in the business of you. Let Alliance and Trust help you plan for what's next. To learn more and get your free copy of Alliance and Trust's book on financial stewardship, Wisdom Before Wealth, visit friendofbrice.com or call 805-371-8020. Welcome to the Bryce Eddy Show. So today's guest, uh, I just sort of randomly reached out to on uh, on uh, message through Twitter, and I'm excited to get this guy because today uh, it's it's almost great timing because the world is falling apart, of course, and justice is not happening for those in the out crowd. And I wanted to talk to this guy for a long time, and here he is. This is Andrew Bronca, who is the author of uh, The Law of Self-Defense, and he, uh, this book right here, and he is a, an attorney and kind of the internationally recognized guy in this space, and I, I've got to hear, hear him a, a few times on a number of different podcasts, and I just thought he was brilliant, and he takes, I think, a very um, sincere and not always politically correct but legally correct view on a lot of things. And uh, he's bold and brave in what he says. So anyway, Andrew, how are you? Well, thanks so much. That was very kind of you. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, no, and I'm glad it worked out. Did you ever get to connect with our friend Nick Searcy? Uh, not this trip. I believe he's on the East Coast. Yeah, I think okay. he's in D.C. this week. But, yeah, uh, yeah. but I will. Um, you know, with these Hollywood types, they always have to worry that anyone trying to contact them is a weirdo. So I also wanted to talk to my other friends in the area here who, who might know him. And in, in fact, they do. So I'll do a little name dropping. Yeah, well, and you know, I, I, I got permission, you know, to share his <laughs> sure. cell phone with you. And, and so he's uh, he's expecting you anytime. And he's a great guy and a good uh, friend I'm of just, ours. I'm always blessed by the amazing people I get to meet just doing the work I do and traveling around. It's, it's incredible. Yeah, well, he's a friend of ours and has been on this show and just a wonderful guy. So, so good. Yeah, well, hey... Um, you know, I, I think I told you at the beginning, um, you know, a, a lot of the uh, organizations that I really appreciate um, uh, use your book as a uh, kind of a legal guide when training for CCW and uh, in, in really in any self-defense applications. You know, this this book is really kind of the Bible of that, other than the Bible. Of course. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but with that, I wanted to talk to you a little bit. Um, so first... You know, give us your background, you know, chat a little bit about how you came to be the expert in this field. Um, and then I'd love for you to, um, you know, give me a little bit of an outline of some of the things that we need to be thinking about um, in that regard. And then um, I certainly want to, and I'll tease the audience with this, I want to talk about that uh, Jordan Neely thing. Sure. Um, and what happened in New York and, and everything there. Alvin Bragg just... Um, filed uh, manslaughter charges against him, and they're going to be pursuing this Marine. And I believe that there is an in crowd and an out crowd right now politically, yep. and, and they're going to go after him, a lot of public pressure. So uh, I'm you know interested to get your take after we go over your bio. Sure. So I, I tend to talk a lot. So if I get off the rails or get off the points you want to hit on, make sure I'm going to rely on you to make yeah, sure you Yeah, but no, you that's like the best guess for me to have. Uh, so the uh, my background. So I'm, I've been... Um, 
it really all starts in my childhood. So I've been a lifelong member of the gun community. Uh, I was the kind of kid who, back in the day, believe it or not, you could be nine years old and get a 22 rifle and a brick of ammo and go out in the woods and just plink at stuff. And no one thought there was anything unusual about yeah. that. Uh, I was on the small bore rifle team of my high school, which was in suburban New York City. We had a range under the cafeteria in the high school. Um, and uh, then when I became an adult, I started shooting competitively handguns, USPSA and uh, IDPA. Uh, did that very aggressively for 15 years, going to matches all over the country, uh, shooting. Uh, really enjoyed that. Um, but uh, I, I moved to Massachusetts uh, right after law school. I went to law school in New York. So I'm a young man. I just passed the bar. Uh, and I'm going to pistol matches, like I always do, and gun shows and gun stores. And people know me, and they know I'm a lawyer. And they're going, hey, Andrew, wh when am I allowed to shoot somebody in self-defense? And I, I realized I didn't really know the answer. I didn't know the answer. Because in my three years of law school, we spent maybe five minutes talking about self-defense law. That was it. A few minutes in first year of criminal law. And it scared the heck out of me because here I was walking around with a gun on my person every day in public with that concealed carry license. And I didn't really know where the legal boundaries were for use mm -hmm. of force. I, I hadn't really thought it through. I always just kind of generally thought, well, you know, if I'm attacked, I'll defend myself. But of course, these self-defense scenarios can get a lot more ambiguous and uh, a lot more uh, indeterminate than somebody just jumps out at you with a machete. That's not a complicated legal problem. You just solve that issue. Uh, but a lot of cases get a lot more complicated. So I thought, well, heck, I better learn what the actual law of self-defense is. Law school didn't teach me. There weren't any good resources even for lawyers. So I had to go to the law library and study original source material, the statutes, the case law, the jury instructions. And I did that for Massachusetts. Um, and it took some effort. But if you've ever been to Massachusetts, you know it's a pretty small state. You drive 30 minutes in any direction, you're in Vermont or New Hampshire, Connecticut, New York. And I was in all those states almost every week for one reason or another. So I thought, well, I better learn those states' self-defense laws too. So I went back to the law library, and I did it for those additional states. And then I thought, you know what? Their self-defense law actually isn't all that different than Massachusetts' self-defense law. It's, it's mostly the same. Of course, they have their own statutes and court decisions, but the underlying legal principles are very similar. And I wondered, well, is that only New England, or are there more states that kind of share that common framework? So I, I looked at the self-defense law of all 50 states, and they all had the same basic underlying legal doctrine framework, what I call the five elements of self-defense. And once I saw that pattern, it was a, an epiphany for me. Once I saw that pattern, I said, well, you, you can actually teach self-defense law anywhere in the country, really, at least at a high level, just by focusing on those five elements. And the real value of that is, to many people, self-defense law seems like a black box. It's impossible to understand how it works. You throw a bunch of evidence in law on one end, and you crank the handle, and mysterious things happen, and you get some kind of verdict at the other end. But self-defense law actually isn't that hard to understand. There's not 500 things you need to keep in mind. There's not 50 things you need to keep in mind. There's only those five elements. Innocence, imminence, proportionality, avoidance, and reasonableness. That's it. And most anybody ought to be able to keep five things in their head, uh, especially if they thought about it beforehand. And with that commonality across the, across the states, I realized it's possible to like write a single law of self-defense book that would have utility to everybody, no matter what state they live in. And that's what led to the first edition of the book was, I think, in 1997. And now we're on the third or fourth edition uh, so far. 
So let's uh, let's break down, um, you know, in a sentence or two, you know, each one of those five. And, and which, by the way, you know, you as an NRA uh, guy and instructor and all that stuff, you know how hard it is for people to keep four rules of gun safety in their head sometime too. So, yeah. so let's uh, let's break those down a little bit, uh, you know, and talk about. Them. Sure. So the element of innocence has to do with. Uh, the requirement that you cannot have been the initial aggressor in the fight. Right. Uh, the initial aggressor can't claim self-defense to justify their use of force. Self-defense is intended to allow the victim of aggression to defend themselves against that aggression, not to allow some bully to initiate force and then try to justify his force. What right. could be more obvious? But, uh, and I'll say it over and over again, on all these elements, well-intentioned people manage to screw them up. So right, yeah. people do lose self-defense on that element of innocence, as simple as it seems. Uh, the next element is imminence. Imminence has to do with the notion that the threat you're defending yourself against is either actually in progress or immediately about to happen. Right. It's not some speculative future threat. It's not some threat that may have happened but is over now. It's something that's about to happen right now. Um, proportionality has to do with the intensity of the force involved. And generally speaking, if you're only facing a non-deadly force threat, you can only use non-deadly force in self-defense. You can't use deadly force in self-defense until you're facing a deadly force threat. That's right. the doctrine of proportionality. Avoidance, um, you know, I say there's five elements of self-defense. It's What I should really say is there's up to five, because it's possible for one or more to be legally waived under some circumstances, and then it's no longer required. The most commonly waived of those five elements is avoidance. Avoidance has to do with whether or not you have a legal duty to retreat before you can use usually deadly force in self-defense. Um, and if you, anyone who's familiar or recalls the George Zimmerman trial, there was a lot of coverage of Florida because they were a stand-your-ground state. Right. And they made it sound like Florida was somehow bizarre in having this stand-your-ground law. Uh, the truth is that 39 states are stand-your-ground states. A lot of states that would surprise people, like California, is a very vigorous stand-your-ground state. Yeah. Uh, there's no stand-your-ground statute. About half the stand-your-ground states are stand-your-ground. There's two ways laws are created. One is legislation. The other is by court decision. And California's stand-your-ground law is created by California appellate courts dating back to the late 1800s. And it's still in the current modern jury instructions in California for self-defense. The jury's explicitly told that not only can a Californian stand their ground, they can even pursue their aggressor if necessary for their safety, which is the most aggressive stand-your-ground jury instruction I've ever seen. Yeah, well, I, I, you know, I, I mean, I, I was aware of uh, that we're stand-your-ground, but I didn't realize that it was that... Um, you know, clear it, it, here. It's yeah. pretty aggressive on the books. Yeah. Now. Do not trust these woke banks. Do not put your money into ESG funds. Instead, why don't you talk to the Alliance and Trust family? Finance is in their blood. I grew up with them and they've handled my entire financial world for nearly 30 years. And as a testament to their talents, they've managed to keep me not just out of trouble, which in and of itself is remarkable, but they've helped me to build real wealth. They've assisted me through complex business transactions and family matters. Now even my daughters are working with Uncle Randy to put financial disciplines in place for their futures. Invest with people who share our values and will help you to be a good steward with what God has given you. Let Alliance and Trust help you plan for what's next. To learn more and get your free copy of Alliance and Trust's book on financial stewardship, Wisdom Before Wealth, visit friendofbrice.com or call 805-371-8020. Now, no, but, but explore that concept a little bit more of what stand your ground really means in, in application. And 
Well, unfortunately, a lot of these people learn a lot of these concepts from the media. Right. And if there's a dumber class of uh, <laughs> professional people than, than the media, I've yet to meet them. Uh, they, they're always wrong on this stuff. Well, and, and they're many times intentionally wrong because they're spinning some kind right. of narrative. Sometimes and we're seeing that even, you know, on, on steroids right now currently. Right. So sometimes they're politically motivated. And then, of course, it's just propaganda that they're distributing. Sometimes they're just stupid. Yeah. Uh, but some combination of the two. Any information usually. you're getting from the media is usually yeah. wrong. Must yeah. be presumed to be wrong until proven otherwise. Uh, so there's only 11 states that really impose this kind of generalized legal duty to retreat before you can defend yourself. 39 states do what not. Are those, what are a couple of those states? Oh, I, they're, they're most of the states you would think of, they're Massachusetts. Right. I think Minnesota, Wisconsin. I'd have to check the list. I don't no, know. Just, uh, just off the top of your head was fine for a couple. Um, but a number of it. And, and by the way, in, in the 30 years I've been doing this, every couple of years is another state that goes from duty to retreat to stand your ground. They changed right. their laws. The most recent is Ohio, became a stand your ground state just a couple of years ago. No state has ever gone back in my entire 30 year career. The, the changes have only been in one direction favorable to self-defense. And, and what, what stand your ground really does for you, one way to think about it, is when we talk about these five elements of self-defense, these are required components of self-defense. If one of them is missing, you don't have self-defense because they're cumulative. So when a prosecutor is looking at your claim of self-defense, he gets that report from the investigators and he's reading their accounting of what happened. What he's looking for is he's looking for any one of those elements that is vulnerable to attack because he knows if he can knock out any one of those, your self-defense claim disappears. It's obliterated. It disappears as a legal defense. Um, when we have stand your ground, a stand your ground state, what that stand your ground state has effectively done is taken the element of avoidance off the table as a target of attack for the prosecutor. It's unavailable to him anymore. So just think about if we were talking about physical defense techniques, and normally you'd have five targets that an enemy could attack to hurt you. Well, now you only have a four. That's a good thing for the defender. Uh, so I think stand your ground laws are, are fantastic and should be, should be the law everywhere. Um, the last element is reasonableness. Reasonableness really has two components. A subjective component, what's in your head. Uh, so you have to have had a genuine good faith belief in the need to use force in self-defense. Obviously, really, if even you didn't think it was self-defense, it can't really have been self-defense. Right. But, but that genuine good faith belief by itself is not enough. It also has to be objectively reasonable, meaning a hypothetical, reasonable and prudent person in the same circumstances would have shared your belief. All that really means is that an irrational fear of harm is not enough. Uh, so someone, um, oh, I don't know, has a fear of people who wear law self-defense hats. We're a deadly threat because we're, they, they wear these hats and they shoot me for wearing the hat because they genuinely, if you put them on a lie detector test, they would say, no, Andrew was a deadly force threat because I know that hat. That's a deadly force threat. But that's not a reasonable perception right. of a threat. Right. So they would fail on the element of reasonableness, and, and they would fail self-defense. Just like if you lose any of the elements of self-defense, whatever you did technically cannot be self-defense from a legal perspective because it's missing one of the elements required to qualify as self-defense. Yeah. Um, explain the concept of castle doctrine. So... If you imagine that you live in a state... And I'm testing myself on this one, because yeah, I sure. explain this to people, and I want to see if I explain it Castle well. Doctrine is one of the, one of the uh, poorest understood legal doctrines. And most of the time, it doesn't matter that it's poorly misunderstood. But most people define Castle Doctrine far too broadly. Uh, they define it to include a whole bunch of special privileges you have to use force in defense of your home. 
there are laws that do that, but it's 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 poor thinking to apply the term castle doctrine to them because castle doctrine really has one universal definition that's correct in every state. And that is if you would have had a legal duty to retreat from an attack before you can defend yourself, if you were out in a public street, you are relieved of that legal duty if you're in your home. That's all that castle doctrine does. And if you have that definition of castle doctrine, it's the same in every state. Got it. Different states have different rules that give you special privileges to use force against an intruder into your home, but those rules vary a lot from state to state. The trouble we run into is this. If, if you're having, if you and I were discussing a criminal case involving a home intrusion, for example, uh, a home invader, and we were both lawyers in the same state, in the state of California, and we were using the term castle doctrine to mean not just being relieved of a legal duty to retreat, but also these special privileges to use force in defense of your home. As long as we're both using this inappropriately broad definition of castle doctrine the same way, no harm is done. We're not using it quite right, but your meaning and my meaning are the same. So we can Mm -hmm. still have a productive conversation. If you're using the phrase castle doctrine and someone from Minnesota is using the phrase castle doctrine in the same conversation, those castle doctrines are different. So you think you're talking about the same things because you're using the same term, but, but both of those states have very different laws special privileges for defense of your home. So give me an example of what would be a a special privilege. So many states, for example, um, will have a a legal provision that creates a legal presumption that if you're facing a forcible and unlawful intruder into your home, so they're unlawfully present, they're not a guest, they don't also live there, for example, and they broke something to get in, there's a legal presumption creating that you had a reasonable perception of an imminent deadly force threat. Right. Now, we just talked about the five elements. When, when the law creates a reasonable presumption that you're facing an imminent deadly force threat, it's really giving you three of the five elements of self-defense, reasonableness, imminence, and proportionality, that the threat right. was deadly. So now there's only two targets of attack left for a prosecutor. But there's castle doctrine, which relieves you of the element of avoidance inside your home. So that's four elements gone so you don't have to worry about five things. You only have to worry about one element left. That's the element of innocence, that you can't have been the initial intruder. But let's face it, if you're facing a forcible, unlawful intruder in your home, innocence is kind of baked in the cake for you. Right, yeah. Uh, so those special provisions make it very difficult for you to screw up a home defense scenario. But not every state has that special provision. Some states don't. And if they, if states that don't have it, um, you wouldn't qualify for the benefit. You wouldn't get that legal presumption. You can still defend yourself in your home, but it, it would be just as if you were defending yourself in the street, for example. Yeah, yeah. Um, the the audience missed when you came in. You, you rode your motorcycle in. So you're yeah. also a motorcycle enthusiast. So yes. I didn't... Uh, I, I didn't share that, but um, what what state uh, are you in, or what part of the country are you in? So I've been living in Colorado for about five years. Before that, I was 25 years in Massachusetts. Okay. Uh, my my bar license is still out of Massachusetts. I never bothered changing it. But the truth is, it doesn't it doesn't really matter where I'm licensed to practice law because I don't take clients directly. So right. all my clients are other lawyers who are representing their clients in whatever state they're right. in. Yeah. Uh, so now, I don't do you provide do, uh, expert witness stuff too, or you're just you're just uh, so guiding I, and consulting these guys. So I do what I call legal consults. So in an attorney will call me up, say, 
hey, we've got a client here who's been involved in a use of force event. Most of my clients are law-abiding people, never been in trouble with the law a day right. in their lives, uh, but they pointed a gun at someone, and now they're looking at aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, which is good for 20 years in most states. Right. Life-changing legal threat for them. Um, their lawyer calls me and says, hey, we'd like you to consult on the case. They send me every bit of evidence they have on the case, and I'll generate an expert report. Usually it's a couple hundred pages long of legal analysis determining, in my professional opinion, whether to a reasonable degree of legal certainty it's likely the prosecution can meet their burden to overcome self-defense in this case. And 99% of the time, we get the charges dismissed uh, in those cases. That's Um, great. um, One of the... uh, uh, things I wanted to, to ask you about is um, the temperature has changed with respect to this in our country right now. Um, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm afraid we're, you know, we're seeing this and I teased it in the beginning that you have the in crowd and the, and the out crowd now. Right. And so if your politics don't align or there is political pressure, like we're seeing right now with this uh, uh, Jordan Neely um, situation or others that we've seen over the last few years, um, if, if there's political pressure, all of a sudden now they're filing on you and they're going after you based on political pressure, not based on what the law says or not based on, on what that situation is. So, Former President Trump recently issued a warning from Mar-a-Lago, quote, our currency is crashing and will soon no longer be the world standard, which will be our greatest defeat, frankly, in 200 years. Central banks are reducing their U.S. dollar holdings and increasing their gold inventory. And experts believe there are serious threats to our future value of the U.S. dollar because of inflation, deficit spending, and our increasing national debt. One asset that has withstood famine, wars, and economic upheaval dating back to biblical times is gold. And you can own it tax-sheltered in a retirement account with the help of Birch Gold. Birch Gold will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k, maybe from a previous employer, into an IRA in gold. And the best part, you don't pay a penny out of pocket. Text Bryce to 989898 and claim your free info kit on gold. Think about this. In March of this year, when the banks faltered, the stock market faltered, and gold surged. Birch Gold can help you find out how to better protect your savings with gold. Birch Gold has an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau and thousands of happy customers. Text Bryce to 989898. That's Bryce, B-R-Y-C-E, to 989898 to get your free info kit on gold. Again, text Bryce to 989898. Um, that has me dramatically concerned. And with that, Eric, can you put up that um, uh, Gulag Archipelago uh, paragraph there? I'm going to read this for the people that are um, listening. Um, And this is from Solzhenitsyn's book, uh, The Gulag Archipelago. And this is talking about uh, what was going on in the uh, uh, Russia at, at the time. And he says, in the Criminal Code of 1926, there was a most stupid Article 139 on the limits of necessary self-defense, according to which you had the right to unsheath your knife only after the criminal's knife was hovering over you, and you could only stab him only after he had stabbed you, and otherwise you would be the one put on trial. And there was no article in our legislation saying that the greater criminal was the one who attacked some weaker than himself. This fear of exceeding the measure of necessary self-defense led to a total spinelessness as a national characteristic. A hoodlum once began to beat up the Red Army man, Alexander Zakharov, outside a club. Zakharov took out a folding penknife and killed the hoodlum. And for this, he got 
10 years for plain murder. And what was I supposed to do? He asked, astonished. Prosecutor Artishevsky replied, you should have fled. Yeah, and our in our 11 duty to retreat states in America, a prosecutor might well make that argument. You had a legal duty to retreat if you could do so with complete safety. The guy was just beating you with his fist. You could have turned and run away. That's what they would say before you could use deadly force in self-defense. I've heard others argue, you know, in this that, okay, well, a criminal is going to do what a criminal is going to do. You should know better is is uh, almost excusing and we're seeing it a little bit with some of the mental health issues um like uh, you know those people have now rights um essentially to harass to threaten to um you know do that to us on say a new york subway or something like that and and we're the ones that are that are really suffering for it um you know again have you seen over your career the temperature changing, the political winds changing, you know, and, and how prosecutors are looking at things. So self-defense law itself changes only very slowly. Uh, the only substantive change I've really seen in self-defense law in my career are these changes from duty to retreat states to stand your ground states, where mm-hmm. the element of avoidance is taken off the table. That happens every few years with the state. But the, most of the, the those underlying principles are pretty constant. And, and they're constant because of how old the body of law this is. I mean, our self-defense law really dates back to the ancient Greek Greeks and Romans. It's really the ultimate natural law, right? Yep. Even animals defend themselves from attack, yeah. right? Amen. Um, and um, so that's why it's fairly constant. But what changes, you know, the, the legal system is not some kind of computer, soulless computer where you, you put facts and law into the input and you get justice on the output. Right. Uh, that machine is full of human beings. And human beings are fallible. Innocent people get convicted all the time. Yeah. You could do everything right. And if I have to put you in front of a jury, you could be the most innocent client I've ever had. There's a 10% chance you get convicted. That's just the noise in the system. I know people don't like to hear that, but that's just the way it works. And that's that's the normal noise in the system when the actors involved are not politically motivated. If you're involved in a politically or racially energized case, that 10% chance of getting convicted goes to 50%. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times, of course, the people on the other side, the people acting on behalf of the state, are are politically motivated. And you may live in a community that is politically energized, where the prospects of getting a genuinely impartial, unbiased jury is impossible. Um, <clears throat> there's no good solution to that, really, except don't be in those places so you're not subject to their jurisdiction. Yeah. Move, move to red states. <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, it's interesting. And, and I, even that's not a, a guarantee. No, it's right? not. And I'm... Um, I'm yeah, I'm, ha- I'm half kidding about that, but but it seems like you know we're starting to tell people this, and you know, conversation that um, you know, you if you God forbid are in a situation where you have to defend your life, expect to be arrested. What I tell people is expect to get convicted, and expect to oh, go well, to prison yeah. for twenty years uh, if you're using deadly force and self defense, because that's the reality. I mean, it, it's not a hundred percent risk, but it's a right. real probability. I mentioned if I have to put you in front of a jury, there's a ten percent chance you get convicted. Really, when you go hands-on in a fight, you just incur two risks you were not incurring a moment before. A greater than zero risk of death. You could die in that fight. There's right. no magic pixie dust that says the good guy wins the fight. Right. right. The other guy could pull out a gun or a knife or a friend of his could show up. Who knows? You could slip on a piece of oil. Anything could happen. So you just incurred a greater than zero risk of dying in that fight. And you've incurred a greater than zero risk of going to prison for the rest of your life if you kill someone. Because you could have done everything right and still get convicted. So what I always tell people to think about is, and I tell them to think about it well ahead of the time. This is something you have to put forethought into. What are you prepared to go to prison for? 
for 20 years. At the end of that 20 years, that last day, you would look in the mirror and say, pressing that trigger was still the right thing to do. And I would do it again today. Because there are things worth dying over. And there are things worth going to prison over. If it was my life, I'd rather be alive in prison than dead outside of prison. Yeah. Uh, If it was the life or the welfare of my wife, my children, without hesitation, my parents, without hesitation. And then I start to run out of reasons that are good enough to spend 20 years in prison. Uh, My property, a stranger, they could have gotten a concealed carry permit like me. Why didn't they accept their adult responsibility to be able to defend themselves from criminal predation? And I'm not telling anyone they shouldn't do those things. They shouldn't defend their property and shouldn't defend others. Everybody has to make that decision for themselves. I don't tell people what to do. I just try to help people make informed decisions about what they want to do so they understand the risks they're incurring. And the risks are death and prison. I mean, Neely, um, sorry, uh, Penny, uh, Daniel Penny is now looking at 15 years in prison uh, for, for by all appearances, defending himself and everyone else in that car from a deranged lunatic who was yeah. threatening violence. Yeah, which the state, you know, uh, and the local uh, government certainly there has failed in, you know, uh, managing, uh, protecting people in those situations right now. I mean, and it's, they will it's happily to be sacrifice crazy. Penny to yeah. cover up their failures. Yeah. They'll make it his fault. That's just what politicians do. Yeah. Uh, um, and let's talk about that, that case now a little bit. I, uh, so I uh, was watching, um, you know, again, I originally saw you, I think, um, uh, after, you know, w- w- being aware of your book and reading it and all that, I, I saw you on Tim Pool's show. And the other day, Tim Pool, right after this happened, uh, had a uh, uh, a pretty far leftist. I on. saw a bit of that. Um, <laughs> yeah, and they were talking. They were going around the table, um, and uh, well, you're not an expert in self. Nobody here is an expert in self defense. And I was jumping through. I was actually the, texting Tim. Um, I was like, "Dude, what are you doing? I would have come on the show." <laughs> well, because uh, uh, you know they were they got into chokes, and yeah. you know that's my area of expertise. I'm you know uh, almost thirty years of Brazilian jiu jitsu. Okay. Um, I've been uh, I've I've choked people unconscious. I've been choked unconscious, uh, you know, uh, many times, and I've taught defensive tactics uh, again for for many many years now, um, and and so, you know, I, I did my best to you know review that video um, a bunch of times, and you know they're they're putting around, and and the, certainly the video clip doesn't show this, uh, but they're putting out the idea. His parents and the lawyer for the parents have put out that that this was a fifteen minute. Um, choke, which is ridiculous on its face, for sure. Uh, but especially if you watch. So I'm, I, I also do Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, but I'm a white belt. I just started okay. a few oh, weeks fantastic. ago. Yeah, uh, 58 years old. I just started for the first awesome. time. Awesome, <laughs> great. Um, Glad so, you're on the path. Yeah, sir. <laughs> of course. Um, but listen, a proper choke on someone—they're out in six seconds. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. And, and they're they're not moving. If it's me, it's they're, three seconds, okay. <laughs> just to be honest. But <laughs> they're unconscious. Uh, yeah. So all that time that that Penny has his arm around Neely's neck and Neely's flailing around, he's not getting choked out. Yeah, that's not happening. Yeah. it's just a restraint. It's not a choke. Yep, it looks similar on a on a gross level, but you know when it's a choke because the person stops moving. Yeah, I, I mean, and and you're and you're right. And I tell people, uh, you know, three to six uh, seconds, depending on the on the choke itself, depending on on how you have it configured, because you know there are there are chokes that you can do with a, somebody wearing a leather jacket that that is like two and a half seconds if you do it well. Um, but if it is that kind of a blood choke, they go unconscious. Right. Uh, and then you know, and then truthfully, and I, I say this a lot, the fight is out of them nine times out of ten. You know, because all of a sudden it's like you know the cathode tube of a TV, old TV set, boom, right. And then it kind of comes back, and you feel like you napped.
Summer is here, and Good Ranchers wants to give you what you've been craving, a nice summer steak on the grill. Can you hear the sizzle already? I'm not sure what your favorite steak is, but mine is literally every steak I get from Good Ranchers. Every cut that they source from local American farms is hand-cut, trimmed, and aged to perfection. Good Ranchers is proud to be a trusted source for high-quality, all-American meat, and they are the way to get the most out of your summer grilling season. So head on over to GoodRanchers.com and pick up your box. They have ribeyes, New York strips, all-natural burgers, and all the delicious chicken you could ever want. Plus, it's $30 off with my code BRYCE. With 85% grass-fed beef imported from overseas, Good Ranchers wants you to put American meat on the grill you can feel good about and trust. Whether you're planning a backyard barbecue, a family picnic, or a beachside cookout, they've got you covered with honest, transparent products that deliver on quality, price, and flavor. This is the perfect time of year to easily change the way you buy meat. So head to GoodRanchers.com and use my code BRYCE for $30 off any box. Forget about the summer bod for a minute and focus on summer meats. With Good Ranchers, you can feel good about the 100% American, locally sourced meat you're putting on your grill and on your plate. Make this summer one to remember by starting it with American meat delivered to your door from GoodRanchers.com. Use my code BRYCE for $30 off at GoodRanchers.com today. There's a little bit of this feeling like, whoa, you know, and, and it resets people um, more often than not. And then, you know, you can safely handcuff them or whatever needs to be done. Now they've taken that tool away from law enforcement, All, you know, in, in almost every agency uh, around the country. And, you know, even a lot of agencies around the world can't use that technique because it's, uh, you know, politically a problem. But it's one of the safest things if it's done correctly. It's terrible because it condemns the police officers to use an escalated degree of force. Uh, yeah. Then they're, you know, uh, beating somebody or, or going to their tools, uh, you know, tasing them, shooting them, all kinds of things uh, in order to restrain them and get compliance. And, and it becomes a really ugly, vi more violent situation than right. it would be otherwise um, using good technique. So, um but, uh, and I wanted to get your thoughts on this, uh, I'm, I'm very suspicious of these um, medical examiners these days in right. these situations. And so it says, you know, compression of the neck, which they do not define uh, in compression of the neck. And again, I'm not a doctor, but in reading through, you know, this stuff, um, you know, that has to do with the mechanics in the actual throat and the airway and everything like that, not a loss of consciousness uh, and death due to, uh, you know, restriction of the blood flowing to the brain. Um, do you have any thoughts on that or? Um, yeah, a, a couple. One is, let, let's <clears throat> let's start with the assumption that the medical examiner is acting in good faith and right. is not, has not succumbed to political pressure. Right. We can cover that too, but we'll, let's cover that second. Yeah. Um, most people don't know this, but a lot of times what medical examiners will do was they'll accept the body and then they'll accept evidence about the circumstances of the death and they'll apply those circumstances to their report without actually doing a physiological examination of the body. So an example of this would be uh, they get a body bag and there's a person inside, every bone is broken in their body. And there, there's videotape of that person coming off the top of a tall building, crashing into the sidewalk. With the medical exam, oh, cause of death was, was a fall. Looks like an apparent suicide. What the medical examiner doesn't know is that before that person was off the top of the building, they were actually being killed by the mafia, throwing them into a garbage compactor. And then the mafia threw them off the building to make it look like a suicide. The medical examiner doesn't actually know what killed the person. They can only go off the evidence that's being presented to them. Um, in this case, 
She's she's he's dead. Neely is dead. Right. What's the cause of death? She's shown video of someone with their arm around the neck. She doesn't know what a proper chokehold is or how it works. She just goes, well, one plus one equals three. Uh, it must be asphyxiation of the neck. But I've seen no medical report that points to specific physiological indicators. Yeah, that's what I was uh, of looking injury for. To the okay. neck. All right, good. Then I'm not uh, I'm not altogether off base. Now that that may be the case here. She's just making granted. For, for a person who's extremely knowledgeable in her field but knows nothing about chokeholds, she may be making what to her is a reasonable inference from the video. Right. Um, but I've also seen cases where medical examiners will examine a body, come back with a finding of cause of death was accident, be called into a meeting with the local prosecutor's office, and the next day write a report that says it was homicide. Mm. And it's purely a political change. Yeah, and, and that's that's where I'm I'm concerned and suspicious in today's environment that, you know, there's a, hey, we want you to, you know, um, and it's very easy for them to just write in their report, not understanding, you know, the chokes, not really doing anything. Hey, this is what they want. Boom. You know, here you go. And so I'm concerned that there is a, you know, issue of good faith these days, especially in, uh, in you know, jurisdictions like New York. And it's not like they like need to be blackmailed. I mean, the prosecutor basically just says, hey, it would be really helpful to us if the cause of death was homicide. Is there any way you could you know, infer a homicide from this evidence. The medical examiner will go, yeah, sure, I can do that. Well, it's easy for the medical examiner to do, but for the defendant, it's yeah. life-changing, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. a penny just got hauled out of a NYPD station in handcuffs. Yeah. Uh, you know. Uh, yeah, they don't, uh, yeah, they certainly don't care about him. Um, you know, there are new sort of system of governance does not care about people. You know, they're going to cover over the issues that they have with not keeping the subway safe and all the increase in crime that they're doing everything they can, by the way, to juke the statistics. So it looks like, you know, uh, hey, I, I keep getting told by people, hey, everything's much better than even in Reagan's day. You know, uh, and and crime is crime is better than it ever was. Still, the the criminal justice system, it, it doesn't care about you as a human being at all. Yeah, uh, that that's of zero value. So when we think about the phrase criminal justice system, those three words, criminal justice system, the the most descriptive word. If you had to pick one of the three, that's the most descriptive of that phrase. It's system. Yeah. It's a system for the administration of justice, which is not fairness. It's it's purely a bureaucratic function. We're going to have these rules and these burdens and these evidence that can come in and can't come in. But about you as a human being, it doesn't care at all. It's just it's like a steam engine, steam era engine machine that you're you're fed into and it just grinds you up. Uh, the second most descriptive term of criminal justice system is criminal. It's a system designed to administrate criminals. 99% of the people going through the system are criminals. If you're a criminal defense lawyer, most of your clients are criminals. They're actual criminals. So it's not a machine that works well when you feed a law-abiding person into it. It's not accustomed to that. Uh, like, for example, we don't have a real probable cause standard in America. In theory, before you can be dragged to trial, there has to be a showing in front of a judge that there's probable cause you committed the crime. Well, what's probable cause mean? What should it mean? It should mean probable, that it's more likely than not that you actually committed the crime before they can put you to the cost and risk of a full-blown trial. But that's not what we do. Those probable cause hearings are rubber stamps for the prosecution, just like grand juries are rubber stamps for the prosecution. So if a prosecutor wants to take you to trial, there's nothing you can do to prevent that. No matter how innocent you are, you're going. Uh, the grand yeah. jury, for example, the grand jury only hears one side of the story. They only hear the prosecutor's side of the story. Anytime, we all know from life experience, anytime you hear one side of a story, it sounds compelling. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, of course, the grand jury is, is convinced and returns an indictment and then off to, off to 
um, trial you go. And especially for in a politically energized case with a politically motivated prosecutor, these trials are win-win. The prosecutor cannot lose by taking you to trial because there's two ways to win. One is, of course, he gets a conviction. And even if you're innocent, as I said, there's a 10% chance you get convicted anyway. So it's just like a roll of the die, like a 20-sided Dungeons and Dragons die. He rolls it, and maybe he gets lucky. Maybe the number comes up and he gets the conviction of an innocent person. But even if he doesn't pull that off, even if you get acquitted, he goes back to his tribe, his political supporters, and says, hey, we didn't get the conviction, but I did everything I could. I fought the good fight for all of you. And then he runs for governor. So he he literally can't – there's no – Cost to him for yeah. bringing these wrongful prosecutions. Wow, that's such a great point. Yeah, that's uh, that's disturbing to me. Now they're making a big deal about um, uh, you know Daniel per- uh, Penny's um, combat uh, training, right? You know, now in one in one, on one hand, this uh, the new the lawyers for the family, which the family, I'm not uh, gonna say that they necessarily cared about this guy he was running around homeless in uh, in new york um, it doesn't you know, matter there's a lot of money on the table and, and potentially, that, so. and that's what that's what as a you know human being on this side of it that that's what disgusts me because they're seeing a, a payday in my opinion and so you know they're gonna go out spin a narrative that you know he was this you know wonderful amazing um you know michael jackson impersonator and you know that fell on hard times and daniel penny was a trained a uh, combat expert who knew what he was doing and, and killed him. And that's what they're implying in all their statements here. Right. Um, uh, in sad. general, I tend to default to being sympathetic to the families of the person who died because the, it, it may just be because they're emotionally involved. Obviously, their loved yeah. one died. And so they, they, they cannot have an unbiased view of what happened. Right. Right. Um, e- even if their loved one was a bad actor and actually yeah. started the fight and all kinds of stuff, they're not going to see their loved one that way. That's just normal, being a normal human being. Uh, and then, of course, also a lot of money can come into play. And, yeah. and, and they want the money. And that's human, too. Um, so I, I generally am predisposed or, or default to the position of being sympathetic to the family, while at the same time saying everything they say is worthless. Yeah. Zero evidentiary value because it's either being done out of emotion or for profit motive. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a good perspective and that's and that's fair. Um, you know, I I you know, I hate that we have, you know, some of those immoral or unethical decisions being made for money and um, you know, where you know, and again, I I question uh, I again, your position is very reasonable. And and you know, mine is probably a little, you know, hardcore because I feel bad for Daniel Penny and and I feel bad for the other riders of, you know, all the subways that are being affected by this every single day. Right. And I'm and so I have a little bit of of bitterness towards the situation that's been created here. The system here. certainly is is has become a monstrosity. Yeah. Thank you for watching or listening to this episode of The Bryce Eddy Show. Hey, we need your help. We have a special call to action. Please subscribe to our new Rumble channel, The Bryce Eddy Show. If you've been consuming this on our church website or church channel, go ahead and subscribe to us on Rumble. We need to build those numbers there for that new dedicated channel. For your convenience, we have a link in the description below.